Welcome to the C3 Church Watson Podcast. Our vision is to connect you to Jesus, develop you as a follower of Christ, and empower you to build the church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Great to be with you. Hey, this morning I want to share a passage of Scripture uh, out of Luke chapter 15. And uh, so if you've got your Bibles open there, otherwise you're going to see the Scriptures on the, on the screen. And uh, t- this morning's a simple message. Simple. It's, I'm going to preach the Gospel. You know, the Gospel has never changed. 2,000 years, it's the same message. It's the same thing. But here's the deal. In a few weeks' time, two or three weeks' time, it's Easter. And we're going to be celebrating the greatest event in human history. The greatest event that ever took place. The centerpiece of the Christian experience. The centerpiece of Christendom will be celebrated in this church on that Easter Sunday. But it amazes me how many Christians have no idea what Easter is about. It's, it's to them a great historical event that took place. And like, yeah, thank you, Jesus. You rose from the dead. Great. And we celebrate an historical fact. And by the way, it is an historical fact. It actually did happen. Jesus did rise from the dead. And he is the firstborn of all creation. And as a result of that, he lead, he's leading the way. We too will rise, be raised from the dead. We too will be given a brand new body. We too will be called to rule and reign in the new heavens and the new earth. That's pretty exciting. Like, what? Me? Little me? Yes, you. So that's exciting news. So there's much to be celebrated, but many believers don't know what it's about. So we're gonna, I'm going to preach the gospel, preach the things that Jesus did. And, and, and here in Luke 15, you might say, well, what's it got to do with Luke 15? Well, in about 20 minutes, you'll figure it out. So in Luke 15, in verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. That's to Jesus. I love the fact that Jesus is attractive to sinners. Anybody glad about that? Somewhere along the line, he was attractive to you. So you came to God. You came to church. You came. And wherever Jesus is, people love being around him. Unfortunately, some people don't like being around Christians. And that's, I think we need to shift that a little bit. Uh, we need to be the most attractive people on the earth. I don't mean like Vogue models, although some of you were pretty close here this morning. Uh, uh, some of you not so close, but that's okay, <laughs> including me, by the way. We need to be the most attractive. People should be attracted to us. People should, let's put it a different way. People should like hanging around us because we have the light of the world. We are the soul of the earth. We, we've got the living hope of eternity on the inside of us. And, and that's, that's, that is attractive to people. And we shouldn't be repelling. And so Jesus was attractive and not repelling. And this is the, but, and, sorry, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Well, they're the religious crew. They're a grumbling, miserable lot. Do you know that religion is miserable? But Jesus and Christians are happy. Don't be religious. Don't be really, Religion is one of the, the things that have caused the most damage in the world. At, at every level, re, the answer to the world is not religion. The answer to the world is Jesus Christ. The answer to the world is believers living the light and the glory of God. I'm getting excited now. This is good. And then they grumble. What do they grumble about? It says, this man, didn't call him God, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, my goodness. And we need to, by the way, just on another side note, we need to eat with people 
We need, to, we need to gather people around our tables and include them in our lives. The greatest way to reach Canberra is to include people in your life. And that's what Jesus did, which is awesome. And so he says, so he told them this parable. So Jesus heard the grumbling. He saw the conflict. There were two groups of people gathered to him, the religious people to criticize him and the sinners because they loved him and they loved hanging around him. So Jesus said, okay, let me tell you a parable. So he tells this famous parable of lost things, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Uh, it's one parable, but it's got three parts to it. So this morning we're going on a journey of, of discovering lost things. And uh, so who's ready to hear this? Anyone? I said to the first service, this is about eight weeks of teaching, and we're going to do it in 25 minutes. Who's ready to listen quickly? Anyone? So, so here's the, the first parable, the lost sheep. There was a shepherd. He had 100 sheep. One of them wandered off into the field. And that shepherd represents Jesus. And it's like Jesus the shepherd. He left heaven to go and find the one. Jesus cares not just about the multitudes. Jesus cares about the individuals. Jesus, he would have left heaven if it was just you that wandered off. He, he came to save not just the world. He, he saved the world, but he came to save you. That's great news this morning. So Jesus left heaven. He left the throne of God and landed on earth to do a saving work, which is called the gospel. The gospel is a, is a word which really means the good news. The good news is he, he would have left heaven just for you, which is great news. Come on, give the Lord a hand for that. That's great. Thank God for God. Thank God for you. But, but most people, so Jesus left heaven to come to earth. But what did he do? What did, did he just land and go, great, hi guys, teach a bunch of good things and then leave? No, he accomplished everything that needed. You can tell I'm getting excited right now. So the moment I put one foot in front of the other, and uh, I'll get real, when I start jumping up and down, I get super excited. But, but, but he left heaven and he accomplished five things in 50 days that changed the world. He accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished. There is nothing left undone. Nothing. You don't have to do a thing. There is nothing more you can do. The gospel, by definition, means it is you are incapable of saving yourself. Incapable. And yet here's the deal. Human nature is constantly trying to save itself. And we come up with ways. It's called self-righteousness. It's called the works of man. It's called religion is really a fig leaf that tries to save itself. So we go through rituals to try and please God. Every religion on the face of the earth is a form of self-righteousness. But Jesus came and said, guys, forget all that. I came to save you. And what I did accomplished that. And you need to do nothing except receive and believe what I've done for you. Okay, I think it's pretty exciting. So Jesus did five things in 50 days that changed the world. The shepherd finding that one sheep. Here they are. Number one, the first thing that Jesus did. We're going on a, on a journey here. The cross. The cross. Jesus died on the cross. It's, and, and the suffering Christ. Jesus went through that suffering. Why? To, 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 so he could say he suffered? No, to, to release to us forgiveness. Heaven has forgiven you. Heaven has, has wrought on you absolute forgiveness. There is nothing you need to do to, to, to achieve or receive the forgiveness of God other than believe that you are now forgiven. And in that forgiveness, God has, has washed away all sin, all shame, all guilt from your human soul. 
And we now have direct, unhindered, free, gracious access to the very presence of God Himself. Oh my goodness, that is amazing. So that we have direct access. This says the veil has been removed and we now can see Christ and we, have, we can come, the Bible says, come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. You have been forgiven. One of the greatest, I believe the greatest malady of humanity is, is sin and shame and guilt that the human soul is not meant to carry. In my work as a social worker many decades ago, probably most of the symptoms we dealt with were the symptoms of guilt and shame upon the human soul. But the only remedy to that is not therapy. The only remedy to that is the cross. The cross removes every bit of guilt, every bit of shame, and now I am free and a forgiven person. That is awesome. But check this out. There's not just that. Not only am I forgiven, that's the vertical aspect of the cross, but the horizontal aspect of the cross gives me power to forgive. It gives me power to forgive others. In fact, Jesus talked about it in the Lord's Prayer. And then he, he is the only piece of the Lord's Prayer that he reinforced twice after the Lord's Prayer. He says this, If you do not forgive others who sin against you, my Father in heaven will not forgive you. Uh, so that's, that's a powerful little motivation right there. Who reckons that's good motivation? <laughs> and, and so we need to forgive others. T.D. Jakes says this, T.D. Jakes says forgiveness is like breathing. As I breathe in the forgiveness of God, I breathe out forgiveness to others. And the moment you break the cycle is the moment you stop receiving the forgiveness. You cannot keep breathing in without exhaling. You cannot. It's impossible. Try it. You, you'll explode. You'll just, and many Christians are exploding Christians. They're like, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord, forgive me, Lord. But there's this person next to you who needs forgiveness. God says, forgive them and I'll keep forgiving you because it's a closed circuit we need to keep forgiving. And, and in fact, he says, T.D. Jakes says this, as often as you breathe, you should forgive. As often as you breathe, you should forgive because that keeps us free. We need to stay in the power of the cross, receiving and giving forgiveness. I'm telling you, it'll heal your family. It'll heal your marriage. It'll heal your relationship with that person who somehow there's been a, a, a breakdown of connection. Forgiveness, the cross, is the answer. That's great news. Come on, give the Lord a hand. That's great. All right. I better get on with it. Okay. But Wait. There's more. <laughs> Beyond the cross is what? Beyond the cross is the burial. Where did Jesus go after the cross? Jesus didn't just disappear. He didn't just go to sleep for three days. Where did Jesus go? Jesus went to hell. Not in judgment. He wasn't judged to go to hell. He went there by choice. And what did he do in hell? It says he preached to the demons. First Peter, he preached. He preached to the devil. And did he preach gospel of salvation? No. He preached defeat. He said, you are defeated. You are, and declared, he took the keys of hell, took the keys of death, and he grabbed those things. And no longer has the enemy got, can, no longer has the enemy overcome us, but we now have the victorious Christ. We have victory. In the cross, you have forgiveness, but in the burial, you have victory. Victory over what? Well, victory over the things that are the enemies of your soul. What are the enemies of your soul? Fear, shame, depression, 
anxiety, the things that constantly, what is attacking you right now? The answer to that attack against your life is the, is the burial, is the victorious Christ. You can say to the enemy, Jesus has won a victory for me and I have overcome this depression. I have overcome this anxiety. I have overcome this fear, which is the enemies of your soul. That is great news. This is the gospel. This is the gospel. But wait, there's more. Beyond the burial is what? The resurrection, which we're celebrating historically in two weeks. But what is the resurrection? Jesus came out of the grave. Imagine being there on that Easter Sunday morning. And, the, and, and it's interesting that the, the women were the first ones to the, to the grave site and they discovered that he had risen and he came out of that grave and he began to walk the earth as a risen Christ. But Jesus in the resurrection, the risen Christ gave us new life. Because here's the deal. In the cross, our old life is buried. You know what you need to do with the life that's annoying you? Kill it. The life, it is the person that, it is the sin nature that needs to be dealt with. That's dealt with the cross. But God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us just forgiven. He says, now I'm going to give you a brand new life. And he places on the inside of you the power of resurrection. The Bible says this that the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead now lives in you. You have resurrection life on the inside of you. So what needs to be resurrected in your life? Maybe your heart needs to be resurrected from a broken life, a broken marriage, a broken family. God is the God, is the God of resurrection. He can resurrect lives. He can resurrect marriages. He can resurrect businesses. He can resurrect vision. He can resurrect purpose. God is not finished with you yet. You might think, oh, I've been around for 60 years in this thing. Well, life's just beginning. There's always more hope, always more vision, always more purpose, always more purpose in God. God has new life for you. Every day is a new life. The mercies of God are new every day because he's put the resurrection power of God. If you feel dead on the inside, guess what? Jesus has resurrected your life. If you feel like some relationships are dead, God can resurrect anything and call that which is dead alive, which is awesome. Praise God. Come on, give the Lord a hand. That's brilliant news. Okay. You know what I'm going to say now, don't you? But wait, there's more. <laughs> what happened? I mean, it doesn't end there. No, beyond the resurrection is the ascension. So Jesus rose from the dead, walking around in his new body, freaking the disciples out. It says one time in the, in the, uh, in, in the Scriptures that he was... Uh, they were just hanging together. They're all confused and wondering what was going on. Jesus walked into the midst of them through the wall. Whew, who's looking forward to that body? Anybody? And, and he walked through the wall and just appeared to them. He said, "Peace be with you." And so he, the resurrected Christ, started to connect with them and and talk to them and and talked about their future. And they were like, "Wow, this is amazing! You haven't left us. You haven't abandoned us." They started to get a little bit. Sure of themselves. That's great. Jesus is back. Now's the time that Israel can rise to its former glory and, and we can overthrow the Romans because they un misunderstood the kingdom. They thought the kingdom was, was governmental power. They thought the kingdom was national power. They thought the kingdom was political power. But the kingdom is never those things. The kingdom is a different power. And Jesus said, no, you, you misunderstand what I mean in terms of what I'm going to give you. And, and at that very moment, in fact, as he was discussing that very topic, it says he ascended into heaven. Read it in Acts chapter 1. He ascended and the disciples watched him 
float into the sky and through the clouds, literally, physically. Now, I would have loved to have been there. I believe this. As we get to heaven, we're going to watch a whole bunch of video reruns. I, I want to watch. Who wants to watch the parting of the Red Sea and, uh, and all the other great stuff that happened? And uh, the resurrection, that would be great. And so they, they watched him ascend into heaven. And then it says in, in Acts chapter 1 that two angels rocked up, one on either side of them, to the disciples. And I'm convinced that they were, these angels were from New York. They were New York angels. Now, I know that's a contradiction. That's an oxymoron. Uh, but they were New York angels. How do I know they were New York? Because it says in Acts chapter 1, it says that they, the first thing that they said to the disciples as the disciples were just gazing up in heaven with their jaws dropped. Because then I thought, well, we thought he was around now. Now he's gone. What happened there? They, the, the New York angels said to the disciples, what are you looking at? <laughs> That's what they said. Word for word in the Scriptures. Definitely from New York. Uh, yeah, you looking at me? What are you looking at? You know, like, so, and they said, guys, he's got, as, he, as he left, he's going to return. He's going to return in the clouds. The second coming of Christ is on its way. But that's, that's, a, that's for another discussion. That's another piece of theology. So the ascension. But where did he go? Where did Jesus go? Just float into the sky? And he's hanging on a cloud? With a couple of wings, we have such the wrong view of what Jesus done, has done and what our future looks like. No, it says that Jesus went and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand, so here's God the Father. Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I've got ripped jeans. Am I allowed to have ripped jeans in church? Yeah, I ripped them this morning. I just cut the hole in them. It's a hole. Oh, very good. <laughs> I, only half of me is holy, obviously. I'm very needy. Uh, so, so where did Jesus sit? At the right hand of the throne of God. What did the Father say to Jesus? I give you all authority. I now place everything under your feet. I make every ruler, every principality, Every power is now subject to the feet of Jesus, under his feet. That only happened in the ascension. That didn't happen in the resurrection. That happened in the ascension. So in the heavenly Christ, we have authority. Most believers don't understand the authority they have in Christ. God has given you authority. Now I'm going to, thank you, Nath. Is, uh, I'm going to just demonstrate something. Give it up for Nath. Good job, man. Well, brilliant. Years ago, I, was in, I did Bible college in 1983. It was the first year of full-time Bible college. By the way, if you need to go to college, go to college. Uh, and so 1983, and, and, and it was th- there were 13 students in that year, and I was one of them. And it was a pretty it was an awesome year, absolutely amazing year. But, you know, it was a tough little season for us on a personal level with two little kids and didn't have any money. It was, you know, it was, it was a bit of a struggle. It was a step of faith to do that, but it was, it was a, definitely a stretch doing it. So, and one particular day, halfway through college year, I was going through it a little bit and crying out to God, and I was praying in the back room of the house that we were renting. And I was praying, but it wasn't good praying. It was complaining, nasal prayer. You know, there's no faith in it whatsoever. It was just complaining to God. By the way, God can handle your complaints, but he... He just wanted a conversation with me this particular morning. He wanted to show me something. I'm going, God, oh, God, help me, help us. You know, God, we've got no money. You know, zero faith in it. And I felt heaven, sort of the Holy Spirit speak to me and said, what are you doing? 
And I said, I'm praying. He said, well, it doesn't sound much like prayer up here. And, and I felt inspired. In, in this particular room I was praying, there was a very high, it was actually about this high. There was a bench there. I can't get up in there. I'm not that clever. But, but the Holy Spirit said to me, get up on the bench. So I got up on the bench. And the scripture, the second part of this other scripture said to me, you know when I talked about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Five, six verses later it says this, we too are seated with Christ in heavenly places. That scripture just came to me in a moment. And the Holy Spirit said to me, now pray. Pray from a place of that perspective. Pray from a place above your problems. You are not under your problems. You have authority. You're above your problems. Because faith is is perspective. Faith has the position of being, you are, God has placed all things subject. If we have Christ in us, and if we too are seated with heavenly places, we have authority. And we spend, I believe, too much time praying about our problems instead of speaking to our problems. And what do you need to speak to? You have authority. Say, I have authority. <laughs> in Christ, in the ascension, you have authority. And he has, not only has that authority been given to Christ, Christ says, now you are in me, and I give you that same authority. Jesus said it, speak to that mountain. He didn't say pray to God about the mountain. He said speak to that mountain. Do you know that Jesus never prayed for the sick? Not once did he pray for the sick. He healed the sick. He, didn't, he never asked God, Father, heal that person. He said, be healed. So what do you need to speak to? Speak to your finances. Speak to that thing. Speak to that depression. Speak to that atmosphere in your home so that the atmosphere of your home is filled with joy and filled with hope and, and declare over your children the blessing of God. And I'm telling you, you have authority in Christ, which is great news. Come on, give the Lord a hand for that. Thanks, mate. You may remove the chair. But Wait. <laughs> There's more. <laughs> what? Beyond that? Yes. Beyond the ascension is the descension. So God the Father and, the, and, and Jesus were up there and they colluded. I love the fact that the Trinity colludes. They, 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 it's, you know, they did a collab. Very current word right now. They collabed. They collaborated. And they said, guys, and they said, we need to not leave these poor humans alone. Jesus has ascended. Don't leave. The, they're not, he doesn't want to leave us as believers alone. So he said, what, what should we do? Let's send our spirit. Let's send our Holy Spirit upon them. So he sent the Holy Spirit down. And that great day, that day of Pentecost in which the people were waiting, the disciples were waiting, 120 of them. They don't know what they're waiting for. That is to obeying God. And Jesus sent the Holy Spirit upon them. They got filled with power because in the empowering Christ is power. We don't just need authority. We need power. But what is power? Power for a believer is boldness. Who's lost? Anybody ever had time when they've lost their confidence? They've lost their boldness. We need the power of God. You need the power of God to get up in the morning. You need the power of God to keep going. You need the power of God to keep overcoming. You need the power of God to live the purpose of God. We cannot do this Christian life in our own power, in our own strength. We need God's power. I can't do this. I'm useless without Jesus. I'm useless without the Holy Spirit. But I'm telling you, with the Holy Spirit, I have energy, I have power. Bernie and I travel most of the year, a lot of the year. We're on planes, off and off planes. We're preaching, we're speaking, we're talking, we're conversing, we're meeting, we're whatever. I, we can't do this in our own strength. It's the power of God that gives you that ability. What do you need the power of God for? You need the power of God for something. You need the power of God 
to get through this week, the Holy Spirit, the dissension of the Holy Spirit upon you, the empowering Christ gives us power. But here's the deal. It's forgiveness plus victory plus new life plus authority plus power. Much of the church gets caught at the cross and they never understand all the other things that Jesus has done for them. But you see, the suffering Christ plus the victorious Christ plus the risen Christ plus the heavenly Christ plus the empowering Christ equals, turn that next screen up, equals the body of Christ. The body of Christ is all those things. The body of Christ is thy kingdom come. God has called us to be that on earth, which is awesome. I love that. So this gets me to the next parable, and we'll we'll finish in a few minutes, is that there there we have the lost sheep and went out into the field, which which was awesome. And Jesus went and found that lost sheep. But then they, then we see the story of the lost coin. And I love this story. It's, it's like, my goodness, the sheep was lost in the field, but where was the coin lost? In the house. Many people get saved in order to get lost in church. Much of the church, in fact, I would hesitate that most of the church is inactive. Much of the church is that lost coin fallen on the ground of the church and completely disengaged and inactivated from the purpose of God. This woman, any, a woman in those times, would, as she was in her teenage years, would begin to gather coins one at a time and eventually would gather 10 coins. And as she was a teenager, would begin to sew these 10 coins onto a headband. And on her wedding day, she would wear this headband around her head with 10 coins on it. And it represented the, the covenant between her and the, and the bridegroom, which is Christ, between the church and Jesus Christ. And we are those coins. We are the ones attached to the purpose and covenant of God. But occasionally a coin drops off into the ground and onto the floor. Where? Onto the floor of the church, to the floor of, of, of the house of God. But God wants us, the church, the woman, to find these coins and reattach them to the purpose of God. Because there is not one coin that is, in, that is insignificant. Not one of your lives is insignificant. The church is not meant to be a bunch of spectators watching what God does. No, the church is meant to be a people engaged in the great purpose of God so that great fruit is hanging off your life everywhere. It's interesting that the number nine represents the number of man and the works of man. But the number 10 is the number of completion, of wholeness. The kingdom of God and the purpose of God is not complete until your life is reattached to the covenant of God. How awesome is that? So you're sitting there, well, what am I called to do? Well, see, here's the deal. How do people get lost in church? Several ways. Number one, I believe there's a bunch of people sitting in church who've never found Christ. They just attended church their whole life. That was me for years. And then suddenly I, I, my life was found and I was attached to the coming of God. There are other people who, be, who are part of the church, who have been part of the church since before. In the first service, I said, no, I think before Methuselah. They've been, you've been in church longer than, longer than God himself. <laughs> you've been here for years. And when you first joined the church, boy, were you on fire. Remember those days? And with the passion of Jesus and the heart for God and the heart for the lost. And you volunteered for every team that existed. You were on fire. But just time has passed and gradually, just over time, the passion disappears and the, the heart for the purpose of God disappears. And suddenly you've turned into 
a person who just sits there disengaged. But I'm telling you, God wants to re-engage your heart. You're never too old for the purpose of God. And we need every generation. We need every person engaged. Come on, who's with me this morning? Anyone? But how about the third type of person? The third type of person who's on the floor are the offended. You're offended at church, offended at the leadership, offended at God, offended at another person who hurt you, whatever, there's offense. And the moment your heart gets offended, you, you disengage. Your heart is lost. Your heart is disengaged. God wants to heal your heart this morning. God gets the offense. He gets it. It doesn't excuse the offense, but I'm telling you, it's not a reason to stay offended. And who knows, we need to be a bigger than the offenses that come against our lives. Because I'm telling you, that offense, the Bible calls it this, that a root of bitterness can get in your heart and it blocks the fruit. It blocks the effect of God in your life. But God wants us as fruitful trees and we need to overcome offense. The third, fourth, sorry, type of coin that falls on the floor is young people. Next generation kids raised in the house. Your parents brought you to church your whole life and you're living your Christian life through your parents, secondhand Christianity. And here's the deal. God has no grandchildren. God only has children. God doesn't, and it's, thank God that your parents brought you. And we need to be thankful for godly parents who bring their kids to the house of God. But eventually they too personally need to discover Christ. Our kids have. Our, we've got three kids and we've got almost six grandchildren now. They're all in the house of God. They're all serving God. But each one of them, we remember the time when each one of them have gone on that journey of finding Christ themselves and the struggles that go with that, by the way. And I remember our, young, our son Josh, who now is a pastor in Brooklyn, running his own church there, seeing revival amongst all the hipsters of Brooklyn, which is wonderful to see. But as a four-year-old, by the way, he was the first baby born in C3. He was the first child in, in, in our church, which was the original C3 church. And we, we celebrated that. It was awesome. But at the age of four, I was driving home from church one Sunday. It was just me and him in the car. And he turned to me and said, Dad, I need to receive Christ into my life. As a four-year-old, I'm like, who are you? Like, what, is, who, what four-year-old says that? So I thought, well, just a little, little word of advice, parents. Whenever a child comes and is open to God, Never dismiss it. Never, never downplay it. Oh, they're just a child. No, God, even as a young boy, little Samuel could hear the voice of God. So I pulled over the car, turned off the engine, and just sat with Josh. And I prayed a prayer for him to receive Christ. Sinner's prayer, because he'd committed so many sins uh, as a four-year-old. <laughs> Repent of disobedient to see your parents and no no keep repenting keep repenting and he received Christ and it was genuine he began he began to cry I began to cry it's awesome I'm telling you young people God wants to know you you might be an older person here who's never received Christ and still after all these years you've been living through someone else's faith but God wants to find your heart directly. It's interesting that the woman, what, what did this woman do? This woman who's trying to find this coin did three things. She lit a lamp, which is awesome. So 
I'm telling you, when, when the light goes on in a church, when the presence of God, the oil of God is lit, when there's anointing in a church, not only do we see a lost world, we see lost people in the church. We begin to see people next to us. Maybe the person sitting next to you is lost. Maybe they're offended and discouraged and they're beat up. Maybe they've been doing nothing. Maybe they need to be asked to come and join a team. Maybe they feel like they're useless and the church doesn't need me. No, the kingdom of God needs you. You've got gifts that need to be expressed. Together we're going to see revival in Canberra. So light a lamp. Turn faith and prayer on in your life again. The second thing she did was she swept the floor. And I remember reading the scripture a while ago going, how hard can it be to find a coin on the floor? Drop a coin, there it is. I realized as I began to study is that back then the floors were covered in about 20 centimeters of straw to absorb all the moisture. So when a coin fell on the floor, it fell amongst just layers and layers of straw. She couldn't find it. So before she could find the coin, she swept the floor. Straw in the New Testament represents the works of man. He said, Paul said, God will come and burn up the works of men of wood, hay, and straw. I tell you, we need to sweep the floors of our church of human effort, of human works, of religious activity, and get back to the basics, get back to worship and reaching the lost and doing the things that the church is called to do as we do that. Let's get back to the basics. I tell you, as you sweep sweep the floor of religious activity, guess what appears? People, beautiful people who've got callings and giftings and passions and vision. Imagine if the whole church was activated. Imagine if the whole body of Christ was following their gifts and attached to the purpose of God. I'm telling you, Canberra would be one in about a week. But too often we're waiting for the, for the great prophet of God off the stage to bring revival. No, revival is in your pew right now. Revival sitting in the congregation right now. That's where it exists. It's not here. I'm just here to motivate you a little bit. I'm just here to stir up the saints a little bit. That's my job. But together we're going to see our cities and communities transformed by the power of God. Let's get these lost coins off the floor. Come on, join a team. Come to presence. Get up. Get fired up. Get the, let the passion come back again. We've been passionate for 38 years, 39 years of following Christ. Never lost that passion. Why? Because we've stayed engaged. Get re-engaged. Get re-engaged. And the, and the last story is the story. So I've gone one minute over. Is that okay? The, 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 the last story is the story of the lost son. And we always talk about the prodigal son. By the way, the Bible does, never calls him a prodigal son. The editors of the Bible add that as a title on the top. Tim Keller says it's not a prodigal son, it's a prodigal God. Because prodigal means extravagant. We have an extravagant God who lavished praise, lavished grace upon a lost son. But that was the youngest son. At home was the oldest son. By the way, he was just as lost. And the oldest son represents the church. The oldest son represents the, the, the religious crew and Jesus, when the, they were grumbling, when the Pharisees were grumbling, Jesus was basically saying to the oldest son, you're, to the Pharisees, you're the oldest son. You're the ones who don't celebrate the sinners coming. It's interesting, when the father received the younger son and had a party, the oldest son was like, this is the exact words in the Scriptures, what's that noise? 
He'd forgotten what a party sounded like. I'm telling you, the church has become miserable. The church has become the most boring, dead places. The church should be the most alive, celebrating. That's a really great moment to clap right there. The church should be the most exciting place on the earth. Why? Because it's got the gospel. It has the hope. And as people come for the first time, we as the older brothers should be celebrating. We should be like cheering. The loudest time in your church service should be, altar call, should be the altar call. It's interesting that the other two stories, the lost sheep and the lost coin, somebody went to find the lost thing. The shepherd, the sheep, the woman, the coin. In the case of the lost son, no one went out to find the lost son because it was the older brother's job to leave the house, to go. <laughs> That's the job of the church. We are so stuck in church, we've lost our mission. We've lost our purpose. And, it's, and it's, of course, people say, no, it's God's job to rescue. No, it's not God's job to rescue. It's the Father's job, God's job to receive. It's our job to rescue. It's our job. In the moment, we're going to leave this service and go out into the community. Our job, you are on a search and rescue mission. And our job is to rescue people. But, it, but as you bring them next week, the week after, to Easter, it's the Father is here to receive them. And that's all we do. All we're doing is bringing people to the Father in Jesus' name to receive the power of God. Because there are millions of people just like you who are blind to the gospel, who don't know it, but our job is to go and rescue them. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our church, find us online at c3churchwatson.com.au. We hope to see you in church again this weekend.